Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 211 with Shane Snow of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm your host of this podcast and also the CEO of Founder Magazine. So I hope you're having an awesome day wherever you are around the world. Uh, I'm actually in Sydney. Uh, I'm actually recording this from a hotel. I'm actually catching up with one of my mentors tomorrow. Um, If you haven't uh, uh, listened to episode number 207 where I interview him, make sure you check that out. Really, really smart guy. I'm lucky to be able to learn from him. Now, what's happening in my world? Just come back from Europe. Uh, We are hiring a ton of people just to really produce a lot more content to help serve you guys like we're on a mission to building a household name entrepreneurial brand that impacts tens of millions of people on a weekly basis and we just really want to help and serve you guys as as much as we can so we need more people to join the team Um, we're always looking for just absolute rock star uh, people to join us if you'd like to know more actually go to founder.com forward slash careers uh, so enough about me. Let's talk about today's guest. His name is Shane Snow, and he's the founder of a company called Contently, very, very successful startup. And uh, we talk about his latest book called Dream Teams and how to create an effective team. Uh, we really go deep on this topic because you know, that's something I'm learning, right? Like one thing I've learned, right, is is you can only take a company so far. And, you know, once you, you know, want to start to try and grow it and scale, 
really the end product becomes what your team and your company um, has has built, not you. And it's very difficult to build a great team. Uh, and we go through everything on hiring, you know, how to make sure your team does your, their best work, how to track great talent, you name it. Uh, so an amazing conversation with Shane, really, really cool guy, incredible founder. Um, that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. It helps more than you can imagine. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show. The first question that uh, I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? How did I get my job? This job that I'm doing right now? Yeah. So this one, I it's some sort of weird cross between freelancing and unemployment. Uh, <laughs> what I'm doing right now is I'm founder at large at the company I started eight years ago. So started Contently, content marketing company in 2010. And, uh, and then uh, the first of this year, so after seven and a half years, I transitioned out, so I pop in every week or two, say hi to people, I do some press stuff, but I'm mostly kind of a figurehead at this point, and much more capable people are running it, so sort of unemployed, uh, and I'm back to journalism, which is my first career love, and that, how I got that job is I started asking people questions, and then writing the answers, and questioning those answers and writing more answers and so it's one of those jobs that i think anyone can do if they put their mind to it um getting paid on the other hand that's the tough part of the job Mm. so um man contently is is massive like we have found a work with a lot of writers and it's pretty much every time we say oh can we do you have your portfolio that you want to show or any any pieces or or, or show us, you know, some of the, some work that you've produced that you're really, really proud of, and they always link us to contently. So, like, oh, how I'm did so that, glad to hear that. How did that all come about, man? Like, you know, I'm, I'm really curious. Like, um, so you, you start off as a freelancer. Like, is contently your first kind of startup? Like, like where did it all start? You, you, you're a journo at at heart. So, like, how did it all start, man? So I grew up in Idaho, a small town. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the few really nerdy people that grew up in this town. Um, one of them, one of the other ones is actually my co-founder at Contently. So growing up, being really interested in computers and science and engineering and taking things apart. And I basically started my first little internet startup when I was a teenager. It was uh, like a greeting card site, like send your friend a, you know, a, a web page with dancing smiley faces on their birthday, like that kind of thing. And, uh, and so I made some decent money doing that in high school. It was during the early days of the internet where ad prices were insane. So I made some money that to the point that it worried my parents and they actually made me, I was 16 years old. They made me shut the website down because they were worried. They they didn't quite understand the internet. They were worried that I was doing something illegal, some sort of computer hacking. And they also were worried that I would not learn the value of hard work if I just got rich really young doing this internet stuff. And I was furious. I was so mad at my parents. Wow. And, uh, and we had these fights. It's actually, it's, uh, I love my parents. We have a great relationship now, but uh, it, it's almost a little bit of a sore subject still 
if it comes up, uh, they don't listen to podcasts, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I love them, and and I'm actually grateful for this experience because uh, we we had all these fights, and you know, and I said, well, how you're not paying for my college? How am I gonna pay for college? And they said, you'll figure it out. And they made me get a job at the gas company where I literally was spray painting gas meters and digging trenches, doing this awful manual labor. And so I kind of vowed to myself that I would never do that again. And, um, and that I would never let anyone tell me what uh, to do for my job anymore again. So when I went to college, I decided I was going to start that internet thing back up. And so I built a bunch of websites to put myself through school. Um, selling things in e-commerce and doing some advertising stuff and just anything I could do. And, uh, and that's how I survived during school. And at a certain point, I decided that, you know, the thing that I always loved doing as a passion my whole life was reading and writing. And so I decided, mm. hey, I want to write about startups. I want to write about technology. I want to write about science and people that are inventing things and, and making businesses out of them. So I went to journalism school to get trained to do that. And how I paid for journalism school was these website, little kind of mini startups that I was building, selling things like literally like rototillers on the internet and, and saddles because I was from Idaho. You can sell, you know, people buy saddles for their horses on the internet. Who knew? So I sold a lot of those. So I was doing that sort of thing and uh, making enough, enough money to scrape by. Um, and, uh, and then... As I got out of journalism school, I was writing for magazines like Wired and Fast Company, writing about businesses, doing stuff in science and tech. And I got really inspired and decided, hey, I want to do this again. Um, I'm learning all this great stuff from all of these companies that are you know, changing the world. Maybe this journalism thing is actually teaching me stuff that can help me do better at my next startup. So I was thinking about that. And then... Basically what happened is I had a bunch of friends from journalism school start reaching out to me because they were all freelancers. They were, and, and I was good at freelancing because I've been kind of doing that entrepreneurship freelance thing, you know, my whole school experience. And they knew that, um, and they knew I was good at, you know, websites and things. And so I had people reaching out to me saying, Hey, how do you build a website so that you can show off your portfolio to clients? And how do you do your taxes once you do freelance work? And, uh, you know, how do you do internet marketing? And so I realized that there's this whole group of people who are way better writers than me, way better journalists that were doing way worse than me because they didn't know how to do that, that entrepreneurship hustle thing mm. that I had been doing and with all my little startups. And so that gave kind of was the thing that led to the idea for Contently, which originally was if we can build a little website or a little platform that helps journalists do all the little things that have nothing to do with the craft. If we can build that, get them all to come, help them build a portfolio so they can market themselves, showcase their work, uh, teach, make a blog to teach them how to manage their freelance careers, then we collect enough of these people and we can start brokering work for them like a talent agency hmm. and take a little cut. So that was the original idea. And then what happened is uh, the kinds of clients, we said we're only going to work with clients that are going to pay good prices. We're not going to do this sweatshop labor thing. We only want good prices for people who have training. And it turned out very quickly, we realized that the kinds of companies that were willing to pay really good prices were not newspapers that were sort of struggling. It was brands like Pepsi and American Express that wanted to, to write really high quality blogs or, or do social media stuff or what's become known as content marketing. And, and a lot of them wanted to do like research papers and reports and things that actually the skill set of a journalist 
is really good at. And so we leaned into that. And then basically over the next several years, started building tools to help those brands do things with that content. So you hire some reporters to shoot some video or to write some articles for your website or your blog or whatever. But you also need to manage that process and you need to know, is this working? Am I building an audience? And kind of a billion other things. So we just built software for that. And so suddenly I found myself as a, a, a freelance journalist with this sort of one-man show background of building little tech things on the internet. Suddenly I found myself with a couple of partners at the head of this company that was dealing with you know, like every major brand uh, you know, in America and like 100,000 hungry journalists and photographers and videographers around the world who had built portfolios and were asking for work. Uh, so it's sort of a crazy thing that happened. And then, you know, suddenly we're a software company that makes it sort of like Salesforce for content marketing is kind of the best analogy, which is just so different than what I thought would happen. So kind of, you know, followed the, I guess, the problems that are the people we cared about were facing and just kept building stuff and doing stuff. But it, it was a rabbit hole that took us to a very different place than I imagined. Yeah. Wow. And um, like, uh, is contently like um, still basically where you spend the majority of your time now or are you working on other projects or yeah, so yeah so the start of 2017 i hired a cmo to uh, i realized that a few things one i realized that my job had gone from the guy who builds stuff and uh you know and makes decisions and um and all of that the stuff that and hustles the stuff that i i was good at and and the guy who writes things which is what i love i went from that guy to the guy who finds other people to do those things and then helps them to not fight basically. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I kind of, you know, I spent a few years agonizing over how to become a, a good leader and a good team builder and, and all that. And then as we grew, we got to a point where I realized that I was not the right person to take our organization to the next level. You know, we grew it to, uh, something like 15 million in annual recurring revenue. Um, in U.S. dollars and, uh, you know, in software and then who knows how much money is, uh, you know, I think the last that I saw was something like $46 million a year being paid to freelancers, which is oh, awesome. Wow. We're not taking that money, but freelancers are getting it. Yeah. So it built it to pretty big, but going from that to 10 times that size, I was like, I am not capable of this. And I was kind of getting a little tired and, and I have creative ADD. So, um, so start of 2017, I hired a CMO and basically gave her the reins. And I went on a two-month sabbatical so that I could kind of clear my head and um, and let her have a chance to kind of assume the mantle mm. of uh, of leadership of my department. You know, about forty people instead of going around her and going to me, they now had only her to go to. And then I came back and I basically wasn't an advisor to her for the rest of the year um, while she ran the department and you know built uh, you know a team of VPs under her. And uh, and then at the end of the year, I stepped aside and uh, and basically I'm. Um, yeah, I'm founder at large. So I, I speak at conferences on behalf of the company. I, you know, I go to the the big important events and I'm there for people, but I'm, um, my job now is, uh, is writing. And so I've, I've been working on a book about teamwork based on the things that I've been learning. And, uh, and so I'm publishing that this year. And then I'm, you know, I'm kind of digesting all the lessons that I've learned in this last little bit and then helping kind of push the company along in, in little ways. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that whole kind of cycle of going from, you know, just on my own, 
this huge journey in this company with hundreds of employees and all these users to back to being on my own. And I, I still am attached to the company, but but I'm kind of back where I started, but having learned a lot, it's almost like the hero's journey of some sort. Mm. Um, and, and you go to sort of the bottom of the pit uh, and then during that startup process. And so, you know, the company, it, it's still going, it's doing great. It'll, you know, have an outcome of some sort, you know, someone will, will buy us or we'll go pump, go public at some point and pay our investors back. But now it's kind of like being a parent and your kid is at college and, you know, you're there for them when they call and need advice, but you're just kind of seeing what happens. So it's a strange, uh, strange place to be in. Mm, yeah, I see. And yeah, so you've basically gone full circle. Yes. Awesome. And so, so talk to me like around, so you, you, you just about to launch your, your new book, Dream Teams. So talk to me um, about the whole premise of the book and, and, and how it came about. So, so uh, along the way you've learned like uh, how to scale a company through just amazing people. And yeah, just tell me. So there's a few things that I started noticing when my job became more about team building and team management. Uh, and some of the things were, were sort of counterintuitive that, you know, the more different people were who we hired, we kind of had this nice ragtag group of misfits, mm. you know, at a certain point. And, uh, and there were more problems because of that, but also much more clever ideas. And, and I started looking around at examples of amazing teams, you know, in, in our, you know, in other, other tech companies, other startups. And then I, I, you know, started looking at history of what makes the difference between amazing teams and normal teams and, you know, incredible groups that, that beat the odds and kind of found that this ragtag group of misfits thing is a theme. And, and I sort of dove into that. And, and there's a paradox, basically, that I found, which, and some of this will sound obvious once you hear it, but it's extremely important. It's that two heads are not better than one unless those heads think differently. So if you have a whole group of people that all thinks the same or similarly, they're only going to be as smart as the smartest person in that group. But if you have a group of people who think differently than each other, they have the potential to find solutions and to see things that no individual member could. But the problem is a group of people that think differently is also more liable to have problems with each other, to have miscommunication, to have conflict, maybe even have competing motivations. And, um, and so there's this sort of weird balance that you kind of see of uh, how can you or that you kind of want to get, which is, is stoking this, what psychologists call cognitive friction between different people and, and kind of keeping your team in this zone where there's all these possibilities because your ideas are doing battle. Um, but, you know, making sure it's the right ideas that are doing battle and making sure that that battle doesn't, you know, turn into a war. And, uh, and so that was really interesting. And I started noticing lessons like that. And, and basically what the book is about is it's my adventure into understanding incredible teams and the psychology and the subtle interactions that lead to them, but through the lens of really fun stories and history about like pirate gangs and, you know, and buddy cops and things like that. But there's a lot of things. It basically follows, I, I try to go into common wisdom about teamwork and collaboration that it turns out either is wrong because of new science is showing that it's wrong or it's wrong because we just have gotten it wrong. And so that that's the idea is that, you know, there's common wisdom that we have that makes for okay teams, 
but the most incredible teams out there and in history do a lot of things that go against that common wisdom. So it was nice to be able to workshop these ideas while I was, you know, building my team and, uh, and a lot of them, you know, very much are a product of, of that collaboration process, but it's also a little bit outside of just this sort of, you know, tech business, uh, that I was building. Cause it, it really gets at this sort of fundamental thing about humans, whether we're building a tech company or we're running a liquor store or a coffee shop, or whether it's a family, you know, two parents trying to work together and work things out or whether it's communities or, you know, our nations pointing weapons at each other. There's this similar kind of dynamic at play of we can be stronger and smarter and better together because we don't see things the same, but that's also the source of kind of all our problems. Anyways, that's, that's what it ended up being about. Um, I'm totally rambling at this point. It's all connected, which I, I like. Yeah. Amazing. So, you know, one thing um, that I've, I've been learning over my journey around, you know, scaling a company is once, once you kind of find product market fit, I think, um, you know, the, one of the most important things you can do to take your company to the next level is obviously like building a team, but, but really just finding the most incredible people that have essentially done what, uh, you know, you need, like you need like a function done or, or whether they know how to do it um, and they've done it before. And uh, if you can, if you can build like this dream team or, or like Avengers, like an Avenger team of these incredible people, you can just watch like, you know, cause, cause you can only do so much as a founder and any, or, or your founding team, like you, you can, like your, mm-hmm. you know, your, your group of co-founders, you can only do so much. And, and um, that's something that I've been quite obsessed with uh, is just hiring and, and yeah. finding really, really great people. So I'd love to delve it's surprisingly more. surprisingly hard, right? Oh, it's it harder is, than you imagine. <laughs> Dude, it is so hard, especially when you're in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> but it is possible. It is possible. I'm finding some absolute superstars to join us. And we're building like this team of Avengers, like A players. Like it's amazing, right? But one thing I'm curious around um, where you said around, you know, you've found that you you don't want everyone to think the same and, and you want people to, I guess, think differently or, or have different approaches to things, different thought processes, um, different experiences that they'll bring to the table. Um, like one thing, like one thing that I'd learn, and I don't know if this is contradictory, I'd love to hear your thoughts is around like when, when it comes to your values, like your values are really, really important and key to shape the people uh, that you want to welcome into your company because your values set your culture, right? And, and your belief system um, as a company. And, and in a, in a, basically your values, um, you're, they're, they're an extension of yourself or your, your co-founders or what around your own personal beliefs, right? And, and that, you know, if you use that as the premise uh, or kind of your, your rule book of, of, of the kind of people that you want to join your company, um, don't you tend to find people that are similar to you because you want them to think the same as you in that sense? You know what I mean? It's an excellent question. This is one of those really tricky paradoxes that I found in in researching this book. And it's it's something that makes the difference between good teams and like impossibly amazing teams. And so, yes, having strong shared values is really good for unity. It's really good for morale and it's good for, for being able to make hard decisions together. Mm. 
However, having really strong shared values has a downside, which is that it has the potential to squash things that can be helpful to innovation. That it turns out the research shows that companies that have really strict emphasis on shared values, on core values, uh, tend to get disrupted more easily. And you know, the the sort of cheesy analogy is if you're in a rowboat and your team is is rowing down a river, if if someone sees a waterfall, you want them to be able to point it out. But if seeing the person who sees the waterfall can't point it out because it for whatever reason goes against some you know way of doing things that has been specified, then that puts the whole boat in danger. So there's there's sort of some trickiness around it. A lot of times when we talk about values at companies, we're talking about wish list behaviors. So we wish that people would behave this way in a given situation. And that's very different than the kinds of values that are a little bit more sort of noble and universal. Mm-hmm. So you know, 60% of Fortune 500 companies in America have integrity as a value. Turns out that any company that doesn't believe in integrity, that doesn't practice integrity, is going to have problems, right? They're not going to be a great company, and they're not going to have pe- people are not going to want to work for them. So it's almost like, why do you need to say that one? Like, but you know, if you say it because it it helps people feel good, then great. But it's uh, you know, when we we start to get more specific about values, like the customer is always right, that could be great, and that could really be a good focus you know, for a lot of people until a customer does something that could ruin your business. You, you need to have the room for people to say, I don't think the customer's right, mm-hmm. or you put things in danger. And so there's this sort of, there's a way that the values thing can ask, actually sort of metastasize and escalate in a way that makes people feel not included because, you know, they are different and they believe different things or makes people feel like they can't speak up. So I think the thing, and you said something that, um, that I think is, uh, is, important and and it's it's in this question it's all about the distinction it's about not conflating things and you said something uh strong beliefs it turns out that the best thing you can do to unify a group of people especially a group of people who are very different from each other is not a shared list of values but a shared purpose a really strong overriding shared purpose that mm. that becomes the Kind of the guidepost for how we make decisions. Is this decision going to lead us to get to this thing that we believe is an important purpose? So it allows you to be more flexible on the strategy of how you get there while still having that, uh, that kind of guiding principle. So my favorite example of this actually, of getting this really right, is Google. So Google's, uh, their mantra internally was almost cheeky almost making fun of, of kind of long lists of corporate values that are, are sort of the same. And I'm, I'm not saying that, that having values is bad. I'm just saying be careful, right? But Google uh, is this great example. They said, you know what? Our only value here is don't be evil. And it's sort of like, no, duh, don't be evil. But that, that was like, okay, everyone, everyone gets it. Um, you're, it's a reminder. That's a nice and important reminder. But then what they did is everyone at the company for years and years could recite the purpose of the company, which was to organize the world's information. And gosh, if you care about organizing the world's information, if you get how important that is, that's incredibly inspiring. And it, it will help you to make good decisions. And then when, when you look at situations, you can look at them on a much more custom case-by-case basis. We have this problem to solve. What are the ways that we can potentially solve it? And 
you know, and, and Google also looks for people with certain skills, certain attributes, certain tendencies. That's all fine, but they're flexible about all of it because they know and they, you know, I think as the bigger it gets and things change and all that, I don't quite know about the modern Google versus the first, you know, 10 years of Google, but they knew that they were going to need all of the different kinds of people with all the different kinds of lenses on problem solving, uh, but they were also going to need them to be unified. So uh, that's a long answer, but in, in Dream Teams, it's uh, chapter six is all about that question and that paradox. It's, uh, it's about the idea of you need to build an army to do something really important. How do you get those people to work together, even if they're different? And how do you, how do you deal with this all values are not equal kind of question? Mm, I see. And, you know, for, for, you know, most people in our audience, they would be just starting to build out their team or, or just starting to hire or, or just starting to scale up. So, you know, when it comes to, to building an amazing team, like how do you, what are your thoughts on, I guess, remote versus local or versus a hybrid, a combination of remote and local? What are your thoughts, feedback, what, what's your feelings there? Uh, you know, it's interesting because I've been thinking about this, you know, when I start another venture at some point, uh, you know, I want to I want to design the way that I built the, you know, the team structure and the collaboration process very deliberately from the beginning. That it's easier to do things right from the beginning than to kind of fix them later. Hmm. And that's, an, you know, the, the principle that I really love when working with people, especially as a team leader, but I think in general is this idea of freedom in exchange for accountability. So let people work how they want as long as as long as they are accountable for getting things done. And that's kind of hard to manage as a leader. You have to be very vigilant. But what it, it does, it's a, a nice contract you can have with people. Netflix is famous for, for having a culture where they do this. Uh, they say, work where you want, work how you want. You know, your approach to taking things on is uh, is up to you and be whoever you want to be, but you got to deliver, or we're going to get rid of you, and we're going to find someone who can deliver. So you know, mm. with this great freedom is this great responsibility um, to you know to push the team forward. So I really like that. And so to me, I think the question around remote or in office or hybrid is going to revolve around my ability to manage people. And to keep them accountable, if if I can pull that off with a remote or with a hybrid structure, then I say yeah, because I think you'll end up being able the pool of people that you can work with becomes bigger, right? Mm. You can you can get those truly incredible people in their different specialties wherever they live in the world, and you can provide more of that flexibility. The thing is, is you can't be very hands-off in terms of paying attention to their output and what they're doing. You need to be really involved, I think, um, in terms of, of making sure you don't go days or weeks without uh, seeing what they're doing because you want to trust people, but you know, you're going to need in the beginning to, to work together enough that you can build that trust between each other. And then you're going to need to check in every once in a while to make sure that people are okay and to make sure that uh, you know, something hasn't happened where they're not, uh, you know, they're not doing they're not working, basically. But I think if you can get to the point where you trust people, then remote is great. I mean, it provides so much flexibility. So I, I think the mistake is to be so rigid that you, you know, you don't, you miss out on the opportunities to work with amazing people. 
And, uh, and that might just be, you know, have a, it's like a content lead. We, uh, when we started having people, employees who had kids or who were having kids, we realized that it was important to let people work from home and stay with their kids. Uh, you know, one of our um, employees, I remember every Friday, she worked from home so that she could at least have one day at home with the kids. And, and having an environment where you, you can do that so you can retain the talent that you want to retain, that's good. And, and so I guess, you know, if you have a, a remote team, a completely remote team, and you just can't manage them, you don't know what people are up to, and you can't keep them accountable in exchange for that flexibility, then that's worse than having an in-office team. Mm-hmm. And having a hybrid team where people who are remote feel like they're not part of the team, they feel bad, like they don't get, you know, the attention that other people do. Or where people in the office are bitter because some people get to work from you know the beach. That's not good either. So I, I think how you manage it is the the you know and your ability to do that is the answer to that question. Not which one is optimal. I think. Mm, I love what you said. Freedom in exchange for accountability. So, like as an example, one thing that we do at Founder is um, you know, we do quarterly strategy quarterly strategy days and mm-hmm. um you know we set the scene and the vision for the year and, and our goals and then we have like um what we do i'm not sure if you heard of it like a traffic light reporting system so everyone mm. each has their own goals that they're accountable for and then we just check in once a week and um yeah that you know i'm the same as you i, I, I don't i don't really mind that much um as long as yeah we you know, you, it's going to, it's going to, you quickly find out if, if that person isn't doing what they say they're going to do. Right. Yeah. What's the traffic light thing? Is it like red, green, yellow? Is that? Yeah. Red, yeah. Red, green, yellow. So like, it's like a KPI dashboard. So we all have our goals. Mm. Like, so our content team has goals around, um, you know, keywords or, and traffic that those keywords are being driven and then also unique visitors. And then, you know, a product team might have goals around shipping a certain amount of product or, you know, a marketing team might have goals around, you know, conversion rates for certain email or marketing funnels. Mm. And yeah. And then we just check in once a week and we're either in green if we're on track for that goal for the quarter and, um, or we're in red where we're not on track or we're in, you know, in the middle, orange or yellow. And then, um, yeah, yeah, that kind of, yeah, it, it builds a really strong winning culture. It's, um, I, I didn't come up with this concept. Uh, one of my mentors, Mitch Harper taught me this, but then also it's, um, it's a framework, uh, from a book called scaling up by Vern Harnish. Mm, I know. I know that book. I haven't read it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's similar to something that I did for a long time with my team which uh, I, I forget where this comes from, but it's PPPs. So every Friday I, I had a calendar invite for 15 minutes on everyone in my team's calendar. It was a recurring thing that said, send Shane your PPPs. And it was progress, plans, and problems. So progress was, what did you uh, finish this week? Plans are, what are you doing next week? And then problems is, what are, are problems that need my attention? If it doesn't need my attention, then I trust you, you got it. Um, and it, what was nice about it is, is there was this, this level of accountability that and on a weekly, not on a daily, cause day to day things, you know, happen. Um, but it, it gave me an opportunity to, to see what was going on with everything. And then I would always follow up and, you know, and it, it generated conversations and whether you were out of town and you sent me this or whether you were in the office and you sent me this, I'd follow up and we'd talk about it if we need to. And, uh, and then I could spend a lot of my, instead of doing these one-on-ones where you're like, what have you done lately? 
Um, I could do one-on-ones where I take people to coffee and, and fig- see how they're doing from a personal standpoint, offer my, you know, kind of my, my emotional support and, uh, and then, you know, kind of build that trust and rapport so that we could then, I could then during the weekend and with these PPPs, I could then push them to, to go further than, you know, than they maybe think that they can go, but because we have this trust and because I'm, I'm getting this accountability from them, I like that. I don't think it was a perfect process, but I like I like that kind of idea of uh, of there is a, a formal accountability, but it's also coupled with this knowing that you care and um, and showing that you care by giving people you know uh, freedom and and not you know breathing down their neck you know minute after minute. I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I think I think it does it go to say goes without saying like when it comes to building a dream team, people can't be micromanaged yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah there is kind of this entrepreneurial nature to you know a lot of dream teams they're the individuals on them often tend or you know a, a plurality of them or a majority of them often tend to be good at uh, ingenuitive and good at figuring things out on their own mm. and then when you combine them combine that with this sort of sense of shared consciousness where you know if I bring this thing to this person they're gonna kind of do x y or z they're gonna figure out the problem in this direction um, or you know you see this in in amazing sports teams that they can you know throw the ball or pass the puck and uh, without looking and they know that their teammate is going to be there being able to combine that um, you know with the, with that other stuff that's with the you know kind of the resourcefulness that is often um kind of and a through line no matter what how you know what skills people have and what different perspectives people bring uh they often tend to have those kinds of things the ability to read each other and trust each other and um and the ingenuity sort of entrepreneurship factor Mm, so like knowing that that person has your back or the whole team has each other's back is incredibly powerful. Super powerful. What yeah, it's... Please go on, sorry. Um, oh, I was going to say, I think a really powerful combination is knowing your team has your back and also being able to have conflict. So knowing that you have complete personal support, emotional support from your team, they'll do anything for you, um, you feel safe, but that you can then also debate and fight and argue or it doesn't have to be a fight but you can you can really have a battle of ideas while feeling safe that's an awesome combination Mm, yeah healthy conflict is good conflict um Mm -hmm. yeah i agree now i'm curious how do you cultivate this how do you cultivate a team like this so you've you're starting you you so let's say you're hiring, you're trying to find people with the experience, like I said, like, you know, which I think is key. You've got to find someone that's done it before, if possible, or just has experience doing the thing that you, you need to do and, and, and to build out your vision and, and what you're building at your, your, your company. Um, and you start to, to build out this team. How do you cultivate this? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. I think being deliberate about the hiring is really key. I would also say if you're trying to solve novel problems or you're trying to break new ground, you want people who have experience, but who are also flexible thinkers, or you want to put them together with people who can kind of provoke them to 
think a little differently. You want to have some dissent. You want to have some provocation. There's the, you know, the whole thing with the A-team, like the looks, the brains, and the wild card. Mm. You know, having a wild card in the room sometimes is really helpful. Maybe that can be you, right, as a founder. But someone who's, uh, who's pushing people when everyone's like, yeah, yeah, great, let's do that. Like, you know what you're doing, let's do it. Having someone who can be like, well, what if? Or I don't think so. Having that kind of element is, is really helpful. But um, it, how do you create the environment with that kind of healthy friction? Um, it's tough. But part of that is the combination of, of who you put together and who you include. And part of that is as the, as the leader, you can actually stoke that. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite stories in history, I've, I've kind of been telling this story a lot lately in, uh, in live audiences, hopefully not on, on air much. But, mm-hmm. um, but it's in the book is the story of the Wright brothers. And they had this process where when they were debating, or they were trying to solve a problem, they'd actually start these debates and they would escalate kind of the, the tension in the debate, like pretty, they would get to the point where they're yelling at each other. And they were brothers, so they could kind of do that without, you know, freaking out too much at work. Um, but they would, they'd have these really healthy debates. And then what they would do is their rule was at lunch, they had to switch sides. So they'd eat their sandwiches and then Orville had to debate Wilbur's side and Wilbur had to debate Orville's side. And it was really cool because it kind of forced them to let go of their ego in this equation, but it also allowed them to really, um, kind of amp up the, uh, you know, the war of ideas. And you could actually do this, you know, as a leader, um, and, and I do this all the time, when someone is arguing a case for something or, or you know, everyone is kind of, uh, you know, making a case for something, assign people to take the other side. And sometimes they'll take the other side in kind of a weak way and like, a, oh, yeah, I guess we should play devil's advocate. I don't really believe this, but you could say this, but actually push them to, to really argue the other side. And, and we all kind of have it in us to do this. Mm. Um, so that's one thing that is, is sort of a really, and you can even do this with yourself, your brainstorming ideas. Um, after you're done brainstorming ideas, then force yourself to brainstorm, uh, what's wrong with this or what are the ideas that would kill this plan? And, uh, you know, what's the other side of this or whatever you can do that with yourself. It's actually very, it's like a nice little hack for getting yourself to think a little bit differently. Um, cause you have it in you. Now, other things that you can do is you can invite people into the room to participate who are, uh, you know, don't belong basically. Um, and, and this will, can have two benefits as long as everyone participates. Uh, one benefit is just having someone who's different in the room often gets people to think a little bit outside of their normal way of thinking. My favorite example of this is you're planning the redecoration of a hotel. So you're all sitting around, you know, the conference table, you're talking about how you're going to remodel or whatever. Halfway through the meeting, if someone comes in in a wheelchair, everyone in that room is going to think suddenly think differently about the project. Same thing happens when there's these great studies of, uh, you know, they had uh, American Democrats where they they gave them a murder mystery to uh, to kind of uh, try and solve, and then they had to go and debate someone uh, of what the answer to them what they thought the answer to the murder mystery was, and when they were told they'd debate other Democrats. They, you know, they did okay. They did uh, however they would do. But when they were told they would debate Republicans, even though it was a murder mystery, not about politics, they would actually have better arguments. They would, they would think a little bit harder, a little bit differently. Turns out that when you're 
you're collaborating or debating with someone who's not quite like you, you pull out more stops. So there's things like that that you can kind of do. You can also, if you're you know, a, a leader and you're, you're trying to come up with ideas together with your team, you can start, instead of just saying, every idea is a good idea and let's brainstorm, that, that tends to not actually produce very good results. But if you start off with a couple really extreme ideas, then that gives people kind of implicit permission to go a little bit beyond what would normally be safe to say in the room. Mm. Um, so there's this study that I really love that I discovered where they, they did these kinds of exercises where they, they have people sit around a table to brainstorm ideas for something. Um, the one I remember in particular is a, a, a mobile finance app um, for managing your finances and your budgets. Um, and they wanted people to brainstorm features for this app. And when they just ask people to brainstorm features, they come with okay ideas. But when they started it off by saying, we'd like you to brainstorm features for the app. And, uh, you know, here's an example. You could actually have uh, like a wristwatch that gives you reminders on the app. And if you ever fail to, uh, you know, to complete the reminders, then it has a little razor blade underneath it and it'll cut you on your wrist. And it's like, holy shit, no one would ever, you know, do that. Like, that's a terrible idea. It's a terrible feature. It wouldn't work. It's like too crazy and extreme. But when they'd start the brainstorm session off with that sort of thing, people would actually propose better ideas than they would otherwise. And it's, it's kind of because like if, well, if we can throw out the, you know, the cut the wrist idea, then maybe this thing that I have in my head that, that, you know, is a, is a little bit risky for me to say in this group setting is not so risky. So there's a, there's lots of little sort of hacks you can do to kind of uh, stoke that cognitive friction side of your team. There's, there's a whole bunch of stuff in, in the book and I have, I have stuff on my website around that too. But generally the idea as the leader is you want to look for opportunities where you can get different brains to mash together. And then you want to kind of provide guardrails so that if it gets personal, you tell people to switch sides or you, you know, you intervene and, and bring it back to being about ideas. And, you know, that's uh, it's a different kind of leadership, but I think it's a, it's a more uh, innovative kind of leadership. Yeah. Amazing, man. And look, Dude, we have to work towards wrapping up. This this conversation went so fast. I could talk to you all day about this stuff because uh, I'm I'm really obsessed with team building as well, and I'm, I'm deep within just HR and just trying to find the best possible mm -hmm. people to join us. But um, look, just a couple of final questions. Um, the first is uh, where's the place? Where's uh, where, where's uh, the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work, um, and also more about Dream Teams and. Then lastly, just um, just anything that you'd like to finish off with. I know we didn't even get to touch on content marketing and the power uh -huh. of it, and, and uh, you're obviously quite masterful at that. But um, just any any final kind of words, because uh, yeah, man, we have to work towards wrapping up. Uh -huh. Well, uh, you can find me at it's just my name, shanesnow.com, and that has links to everything from contently to uh, to my books and. You know, on the content marketing theme, I would say one of the most important things that we can do as leaders, as founders, as team members is to share our personal story of what we care about and why we're doing what we're doing and to identify the emotions that, uh, that we have for that. So, you know, that thing about Google and the purpose or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. clearly the founders had a story that they shared with their people about why they cared about this and how it made them feel. There's something really powerful about that, of getting people to also care um, enough to support you or to join you or to, you know, to 
submit their resume or to, you know, to, to be on your, your side. And, um, and also if you're working with people who you're, you know, you're uncomfortable with or, or you're not, you haven't quite gotten uh, to that place where you can click sharing your story. Um, and, and I'm not like getting too personal necessarily. It doesn't have to be personal, but talking about who you are and why you care about the things you're doing is incredibly powerful. And it sounds simple. There's actually a lot of, of brain science that backs this up that, you know, we tell stories and that in our brains makes us care and it builds relationships. So um, you know, and humans are built for stories. That's what we do all day long. So use that, um, and but do it about things that you care about, and you'll be amazed at how how much that affects how you work with people. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Shane. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to connect. I really appreciate your time, and this is an awesome interview. Thank you so much. I, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.